Go to the opera. Don't go to the opera. Listen to jazz. Occasionally. Play video games. Nope. Listen to classical music. I don't, I'm afraid. Listen to hip hop and rap. Yes. Go to gigs. I went to MIA. On last week's episode, I spoke to Mike Savage and Lisa McKenzie from the London School of Economics. They created the Great British Class Survey a few years back. After I left the interview with them, I thought I should give the survey a go myself. Okay, and then the social bit, which of these people do you know socially? All right, so let's do it. So there's secretary, yep, nurse, yep. I do, my cousin is a lorry driver. Um, Hands up, I did go to Oxford. I don't earn 90,000 pounds, as what Mike was talking about, about the elite. Designers, yep, and chief executives, yeah. So the only one I haven't ticked is farm worker, which just shows I'm just an urban dweller. Income, whether I own a property, I don't. If I have savings, tiny bit. Uh, okay, so I am... Established middle class. funny isn't it because it's established middle class makes me think that I've been middle class for a long time maybe I'm in denial about my age but I don't really feel like I've been middle class for a long time I grew up in a working class household in the northeast of London but unusually for a half Pakistani half Fijian woman from a working class background I've been on the other side of class sitting in old lecture halls at Oxford University studying PPE, that's politics, philosophy and economics. It's the degree that all the posh politicians do. And now I'm the director of a small think tank called Class. I've moved from being working class to researching the subject, which is actually pretty unusual. For me then, class isn't just a social category or a concept to study at university. In the last episode, we talked about why class is still relevant in 21st century Britain and what the class system looks like today. In this episode, I'm exploring what impact class still has on life in Britain. If you're working class, what does that mean for your life chances? And can class change over the course of your life or does it stay with you? My name is Faiza Shaheen. I'm the director of the Centre for Labour and Social Studies, or CLASS for short. In this series, I'll be exploring the surprising reality of class in Britain today. I'll be speaking to some of the leading experts on how Britain votes, thinks and lives. And I'll be setting out the case for why class still matters and why getting it wrong could spell disaster for our society and politics. So last week, we were at the LSE talking to Mike and Lisa about their analysis of the class system in Britain today. Academic analysis of class is important and it absolutely has its place. But as I said, it isn't just an abstract sociological issue. Lisa McKenzie. Again, it's making that connection between these academic terms like social class and actually the reality of people's lives. It's how people feel about themselves, but how people feel about society, their neighbours, their friends, their workplaces. Um, And so it it has an enormous impact when there is class inequality that is deep in a society. In the UK at the moment, I would say that social class is probably the most important social issue that we've got. Because as Mike says, we've got people absolutely pulling away and also and almost being invisible to the rest. And then you've got the visibility of other people. You've got this sort of random visibility, who can be seen and who can't be seen. It also works on geographical lines as well. For me, this stuff is personal. 
I suppose I've had an unusual class journey in life. In fact, when you start to look at the statistics, you could even describe the path I've taken as mathematically improbable. But does that mean I'm now established middle class, like this survey said? I'm a bit reluctant to say my story proves social mobility is alive and well. It just doesn't feel that way. I grew up in East London before it became the cool hipsters playground it is now. My particular neighbourhood had mostly white working class people, including David Beckham. But I grew up with my family of mixed descent, me, my mum, dad, my brother Asfer and my sister Nadia. But this is good. We're only going to record for like 10 or 15 minutes now. Yeah, and this will be cut down to like three, four minutes. (gasps) I went for a coffee with my brother and sister in Spitterfields Market to chat about growing up in a working class household. Financially, things were quite hard. And we had quite a strict dad coming from an ethnic background. Like, you know, dad says no, then it means no. You get the look is what it means. My dad was a car mechanic, and when he wasn't around, there were times when my family had to claim benefits to pay the bills. But it was just the way things were. When you're growing up, you don't really think about these things. I was a kid, and because we always felt like we were skin, because we depended on our mum, I always used to give my pocket money back, actually. I quite often did, anyway. And when mum would want to call her family, like, she didn't get to call them very often, and obviously we didn't have mobile phones and stuff in those days. Like, you'd put like three pounds in it would go just like that and she'd, she'd only speak for like for 30 like seconds yeah, yeah it was horrible, like, it's horrible. Yeah. Like five minutes there are some elements of class that are really visible the material markers of how much money you have like the car you drive and the house you live in other people's cars were really nice or at least acceptable and we always had oh, the no. ugliest cars oh, this was so ugliest bad cars. We, had, we, we had to we had a nickname for one of the cars that we were in we called it the shit Sh- yeah shitty shitty bang bang <laughs> shitty bang bang is one of the <laughs> But as we found out growing up, there are also lots of invisible things that marked us out and made us different. Things that made it clear that class isn't just about what you've got, but who you know and how you've been trained to behave. When I was a kid, I didn't know what working class was. I only really discovered what this idea of being working class was Maybe when you went to university, yeah. actually. When actually, we realised, when I went to Oxford. I didn't know what being working class was. I, I, I realised when you went, went to, to Oxford Derby. and you met rich people. But those things were like a fantasy. I never really identified as working class. I mean, why would I? I remember mocking you a bit because you came home boards. and your accent had changed. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, your accent had changed. And then it was we really weird. We were like, like, we were like what's happened to Pfizer? Because she was like, you, you kind of went posh. And then you would yeah. go like really ghetto. <laughs> And then posh, and we'd be like, what's going on? And culture is a big part of it too. You were living in Brixton with your mate Arawa, who like you knew from Oxford. Um, and I was like working at this community radio station, and then a colleague of mine said, you should go for this job. The BBC, obviously, big big in terms of media, so if you want a job in the media, then, or, I, mean, I didn't want a job in the media, but they, I was doing radio, they were like, you should go for this job, so I went for this job. But I didn't really know much about Radio 4 for a long time, and it was only when you were living with Arua, and I was in my like early twenties. Yeah, at this point. I was twenty-three. I was. You know, we, used, yeah. we grew up listening to like pirate radio stations or like maybe Capital. We didn't listen to the BBC Radio Four or Sunrise Radio. Or Hello, Sunrise Asian radio. radio station. Yeah, exactly. Sunrise Radio. Yeah. Um, and I remember standing in the kitchen cleaning dishes, and like there was this comedy thing on. I was like, Oh, I'd not heard of it. Comedy on the radio. I, t- I don't know. I just not ever experienced that before. And then was this? You know, I was like asking. I was like, What is this? What is this? And they were like, oh, this is Radio 4. I was like, what's, what's yeah, that? Yeah, no, me too. That's the first was, time I discovered it. And they too. were so surprised, right? They were yeah. like, how can you not know what Radio yeah. 4 is? And I worked there. 
Being working class had lots of obvious effects on our lives as we were growing up. From the toys we played with as kids, to the radio stations we listened to, to our educational experiences. But talking to Nadia and Asfa, I'm struck by this other side to class. A sense that no matter how well you do, how hard you work, there's what you might call a class ceiling. And then it was like such an extreme when I'd come down to see Pfizer and then it's like this whole other world. It's just like... It feels like other worlds, doesn't it? Yeah. It feels like other worlds. It feels like... I didn't know about class until I was into my late teens. Like, you go into university and this kind of exposure shifting a bit and then really I experienced it more when I kind of started working actually at the BBC more in a personal way but it feels like going to other worlds I didn't recognize how how much was against us when we were kids how hard we were having to fight because I thought everyone was having to fight this hard I didn't know I didn't know that it was going to be... Actually, it was just normalised for us, so we didn't really know any, any I think we realised we, when we lived in Walthamstow and, like, that, was that really time, hard. that was hard. I think that we knew there was time. particular times when we thought, like... But I, just thought I, we, I just thought we were poorer than other people that we knew. I didn't see that even the people we knew belonged to a completely different part of society who were never going to be, a, you know, BMPs. They weren't going to be journalists. They weren't going to be judges. I didn't know all that stuff then when you look back you think this isn't fair this hasn't been fair and I think of other people who were in those positions and I think of those other kids in school who deserve like success and financial security and positions where they get to decide they get to make decisions whereas as I've got older I realise the people who are making decisions are often from a very particular background and I'm not of that background So does the fact that I managed to peek over the fence into one of these other worlds prove that we live in a country where everyone can be socially mobile Or are there still barriers that hold back working class people? Looking at the figures, I couldn't find a box for half Pakistani and half Fijian. But when you take just a state-educated Pakistani child, they have only a 0.3% chance of getting into Oxford or Cambridge universities. That compares to a 6% chance for a white child who went to a private school. That means the white, privately educated child has 20 times the chance of getting into Oxford or Cambridge universities. But even when working class people get into Oxford or Cambridge, and even when they get into good jobs, they still face barriers in getting to the top of their professions. Sociology's apartment this time, Sam. Sam, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sam Friedman. I'm an associate professor in sociology here in LSE. You know, when most people measure and think about social mobility, for instance, which which has become this sort of huge political buzzword, they really tend to talk about access, getting people in the door of elite occupations. But there's very little understanding of what happens to people once they're in. I suppose there's an assumption that once once we get people in, you know, everyone, right. you know, it's a perfect meritocracy and people people progress on the basis of their talents and their abilities. We were slightly sceptical about that. So what we did was we used Britain's largest employment survey, the Labour Force Survey, and we honed in on people who were in sort of top occupations in the UK. And at a basic level, we just looked at their average salaries, but by their class backgrounds. And there was a really intriguing finding, which was that actually people from privileged backgrounds in the same set of occupations were earning considerably more. Now, how much more? Well, I mean, the initial finding was was very high, about 20, 22%. 
But of course, you know, there may be somewhat sort of legitimate reasons for that. The privileged people in the sample might be older and therefore, you know, Mm. Uh, further on in their career. So we started to try to control for things that might be seen as sort of legitimate. Like different sectors, age. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, what sector you work in, uh, how much training you've got, your level of education, what might be seen as sort of meritocratic reasons for different earnings. Even when we control for all of these things, you still store this very strongly statistically significant pay gap of about 7% which considering you sort of throw all of those controls at it, you know, is a really quite a powerful pay gap and really sort of, I suppose, indicative of something quite powerful going on that's sort of preventing people from working class backgrounds getting to the top. Or Um, that the flip side is the privilege continues to pay off way into adult life and into work. Absolutely, yeah. So if being working class is holding people back or if being privileged is still helping people out, what does that actually look like in practice in the workplace? There are sort of behavioural codes. When you think about what they are, they connect, I think, quite strongly to to class background. Um, like what? What kind of codes? So like, is, you know, your knives and forks. So this is interesting. <laughs> so, so, for instance, um, in television, everybody is dressed very informally and seems to be very informal with one another. But what it was clear to me, having done, you know, both participant observation and lots of interviews, is that, you know, that informality is in no way a sign of sort of openness. It's actually that the code, what I call in my analysis, studied informality, is actually really powerful for for, for getting ahead. Cool. Yeah, it's very good. Very strong. Right, okay, good. So that's all good. So what happens is, like, um, you tweet, yay, on the train to Manchester for Women's Hour. Uh, so excited, can't wait. Um, so then Jamie retweets it, and suddenly it's like hashtag mashup city. It's, you know, about knowing when to swear in a, in a meeting, um, exactly what sort of trainers that you wear to work, huh. how to greet one another, you know, it's, you know, how many kisses you give, things like this, behavioural codes that actually in television are incredibly important for sort of designating someone as being uh, one of us, mm. you know, somebody who understands the fit of the industry or the organisation. In contrast, if you looked at something like accountancy, those codes were much more clear cut, but similarly sort of classed. Often what people talk about in accountancy is polish. That's often about self-presentation. It's about accent. It's about dress. It's about etiquette. But all of these things, what's interesting about them is the way in which when you talk to people from working class backgrounds, they are the ones who seem to find these codes particularly difficult to navigate. I don't know about you, but I was never taught this stuff. We tell kids that if they work hard at school and pay attention, then they can get ahead. But it turns out that the things you learn outside of school can be just as powerful. I think what you get from a sort of privileged background is a sort of base level of what Bourdieu, who I, a sort of sociologist that I work with a lot with, what he would call embodied cultural capital, that comes from at a really trite level, you know, conversations with your parents about art and culture around the dinner table, a certain confidence about talking about your own thoughts, opinions, 
what then happens is that probably that base level gives you a, a sort of an advantage in in relation to then when you go into specific occupations there are different codes and that of course you don't know those inside out from your background but it's your ability to adapt to them that i think is still somewhat linked to those sort of that base level that comes from your background there's a very clear class divide in terms of who feels confident using them to their advantage in the workplace and who feels incredibly disorientated inferior and confused by these codes to be honest this really bugs me this isn't about intelligence it isn't about how hard you work it's about who you know who you grew up with the culture you consume and how you come across that just doesn't seem fair these things while seen and historically embedded in the occupations as being important are actually relatively arbitrary those markers of class are actually holding us back from having the best people at the top? I think so. Some people start from a a clearly advantaged position. And whilst, you know, those who get to the top from privileged backgrounds are, you know, and this is an important point, you know, clearly often very able, they've been able to realise their talents (laughs) um, in ways that others haven't. Their occupational environment is sort of designed for them. It's a bit like the glass slipper in Cinderella's foot. She's only a good fit because the shoe was made for her. Mm. So I think I learned some of that cultural code to some extent when I when I went from East London to Oxford and I saw some of it and I think I yeah. learned some of it. Yeah. And I think that has helped me. Is that what we should be doing? Should we be trying to teach people some of those codes or, you know, or is this about doing away with the codes? I mean, how, how do we, you know, it just seems like a very kind of innate, underlying thing that's quite hard to get your finger on but yet it's very important in understanding why there's that pay gap yeah uh, the key question is to what extent are these codes meaningful to what extent do they actually help you do your job better and i think the answer in most cases is is they're not um they're sort of artifacts of how the occupation has developed over time and about who has traditionally dominated that occupation and I think it's more about debunking and actually sort of saying, well, these things aren't markers of talent, ability, intelligence, what have you, in the workplace. A lot of the time this is subtle, but the writer and journalist Dawn Foster has been on the sharp end of class prejudice. The one I realised, first of all, that... Um, after I kind of left my community, went to university, got my first job. So you grew up in Wales, right? Yeah, I grew up in Wales. I've got lots of family in Northern Ireland. So kind of, I moved to England to go to university and that was a bit of a culture shock. I went to Warwick University and um, I was on a big scholarship. So the first thing I did when I got there after I unpacked was I was invited to a meeting of all the scholarship kids and they all seemed completely normal. And we were meant to meet our professors and see just how how it worked and how how we shouldn't be afraid to approach them and obviously the opposite happened one of the first things that happened was my English professor commented on my accent and said you know bit word of advice you want to lose that if you want to get anywhere in life so every every single time I had a seminar after that 
I was really, really conscious of my accent. I was really, really conscious of the fact that the that what he was essentially saying was that my accent made me sound stupid. And over the course of my degree, I sounded less and less Welsh. Got to London, started working in journalism, and was just kind of amazed by how many people went to private school, how many people went to Oxford, and. As a result, I don't sound Welsh at all now. And it was only when I started gaining more confidence I was able to turn around and say, why are you mocking accents? You know, do you, do you think there's something you know, especially exciting about growing up in Tunbridge Wells? <laughs> and that sort of thing. I'm a lot more confident now than I was when I was a scholarship kid going off to, to university. But there are still lots of things that my, my private school educated co- uh, colleagues will just do without thinking. You know, like ask for pay rises, like demand bylines, put themselves forward for things. I think also, like if 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 someone I know gets a, gets a job, I'll congratulate them and say how great it is. Whereas I think a lot of the people who are of a higher social class than me, the first thing they do is think, "Why not me?" And it's normally not when somebody of the same social class gets it, but when somebody like me, who's like from a poor background, does. There's, you know, suddenly everyone's like, "Well, you know, why why why, why her yeah. when I've done everything right?" I actually had one journalist turn around to me once and um, say that my existence annoyed him because I was four years younger than him. He'd been to a very posh school. Uh, I, I'm not very good at ranking posh schools, so I don't care about them. Um, <laughs> and then he went to Cambridge and then he did a city journalism course and he had been sacked from three jobs. And he said, I've done everything right. You haven't. And I said, what have I done wrong? And he said, well, you grew up poor, you were in care, uh, you went to comprehensive school. And I was like, those weren't things that I did. Those are things that, I, that happened, happened in society. Yeah. I said, equally, like you being born into a rich family, wasn't you doing something right? But he just didn't see it like that whatsoever. So one of the things that I've heard and I'm sure you've heard too is well you you're here aren't you so yeah so it can't be that bad I mean are you just moaning about nothing right so how are you and I right now having this conversation if mm. the system isn't working well it's, I mean it, I, exactly I've heard that so many times it's like but you're a working class person so if you can do it any of you anybody can I think it always comes down to representation people always point at the outliers and say if this person got here anybody can when what they should be doing is looking back and thinking why isn't this representative of society all you have to do is look at the numbers so in journalism i think it's um 50 to 60 percent of journalists went to private school and yeah. then you look at society and it's seven percent and i'm in the minority i'm one of the 25 percent who went to a comprehensive school and when i talk to other journalists about the comprehensive schools they went to i'm one of the very few who went to a really terrible one so you know and unless you generally think that my neighbors are stupid my neighbors are incapable my neighbors if they had the same life chances, you know, wouldn't have got there, then you then you have to accept the unfairness. But people don't want to accept the unfairness because it means rebalancing society. So let's get back to that question I asked at the start of the episode. Can your class change over the course of your life or does it stay with you? All the evidence points towards social mobility in Britain being very limited. And we can't just count on people learning the right social cues and codes if we want a fairer society. In a new book that has already touched a nerve, Sandberg proposes a reason for why there are so few women at the top. The problem, she says, might just be women themselves. In 2013, Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer at Facebook, wrote a book called Lean In. Put your foot on that gas pedal and keep it there. Do not lean back, lean in. She tried to explain why women are underrepresented at senior levels in the workplace, offering advice for women on how they could go further. 
Are you trying to reignite the revolution? I think so. Last year, Dawn Foster published a response, Lean Out. My flatmate came home with a copy of Lean In that her boss had given her when she started a women's group. And he came in and said, you don't need this women's group, each have a copy of this book, off you go. And that kind of encapsulates the kind of argument that Sheryl Sandberg says that feminism, you know, is about each individual person trying to get the best themselves and stopping themselves from doing these annoying little things like uh, not going back after maternity leave, you know, and putting yourself forward more and that sort of thing. When all I could see was that you know, the, the gap between the super rich and the rest of us was growing and growing and growing. This was a book for the super rich. Sheryl Sandberg had made herself super rich and I couldn't see how that had helped women at all. At the same time, I was writing a lot about austerity and poverty. I started writing it a year or two after the cuts really started to bite. You know, at the time, 80% of austerity cuts hit women. And I just saw women being hit really hard by a government that you know, had a lot of women in the cabinet who claimed they were feminists, um, who subscribed to this. And at the same time, I saw, you know, poor women, working class women, um, black and Asian women really, really being hurt really badly by the cuts, but also organising. So part of Lean Out was about how uh, stereotypes around working class women really, really work against them. So with the um, grooming scandals in Rochdale and Oxford, etc., part of the reason why the authorities didn't really move was because they decided that, you know, these working class girls in care were troublemakers, they were, you know, sexually promiscuous, they weren't to be believed, and, and, and there's all these stereotypes of working class women as, you know, kind of animalistic and not worthy of saving, unlike, you know, very well put together middle class women that led to them being the victims of crime and being completely let down by the state over and over again. And then I saw a lot of single mums who had the same stereotypes uh, thrown at them from counsellors, from the government, from the media, but weren't willing to sit down and shut up and listen. So would you say that looked at that way, class is more important than gender? I definitely think so. I mean, as as a kind of woman who's kind of moved through the class system but also um you know thinks a lot about feminism i've always found that classes i I i feel as though class has held me back a lot more than gender i feel that i feel gender more day to day but the issues i have with class are often bigger and deeper. Structural, yeah. Yeah, completely, completely. Um, I mean, a lot a lot of the workplaces I've worked in, there are quite a few women, there are almost no working class people. Mm. And I think often, you know, people will look around, and, look around a newsroom, look around an MP's office and think, oh, there's quite a few women in here, that's good, you know, pat themselves on the back, and won't think about exactly what the social makeup of that is. So the number of times I've, you know, I, I just don't even put my school on my um, CV anymore. Um, when I was at university, one of the first questions that people asked was, where, where did you school? Yeah, me too. Not, I could not go that. to, no, me neither. I, I just didn't, and I was like, what does that even mean? Like, do you mean go to school? And it was like, no, actually, it's a secret code you don't understand. And then, you know, kept to the Guardian and people asked me which college I went to. And I said Warwick. And they were like, oh, is that, is that, is that near Mansfield? And I'm like, no, 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 I, I actually didn't go to Oxford. And they're like, oh. But it's, so I feel like I feel gender more day to day, but I feel like the wounds of class are a lot deeper and the attitudes people have to me are more coloured by my class and my gender. So 
So it's all very good if you're rich and then you can mm. lean in and you're already there, mm. right? But for the most part, the struggle for women isn't just you're at the top and now this is how you can make no, it go not at further. All. But there's also something really positive in that that you're talking mm. about, about the kind of, sort of solidarity, working class women, solidarity, the ways in which they're organising to fight back. And we, we've seen a few examples of that, right? With the- yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... My issue with a lot of kind of mainstream feminism now is that it ignores class and it ignores economics. It focuses instead on individuals and lifestyles. So it's kind of like slightly Thatcherite uh, modern take on it. When I I can't see how feminism could go forward until women are economically equal and economically powerful. So you know I don't I don't I don't mean rich. I mean capable of feeding and housing themselves. Capable of you know having a certain level of freedom that comes from meeting your you know, immediate needs and the and you know the immediate needs of your family and what i found was that whereas sandberg and a lot of the lifestyle feminism was all about the individual and what you can do as an individual which websites you can click what you can do in meetings to further the cause of feminism all the working class women i met were all about organizing together realizing there was strength in numbers and realising that the way forward was not to kind of, you know, in your benefits meeting, maybe put your hand up more, maybe wear a red jacket. <laughs> but the answer was to actually pick at the job centre. The, the, the answer was to go down to your MP's office in a group of 40 and say, we've all got this problem. It's not just me. What are you going to do about it? And I really feel that comes from a class thing. I think, I think you know, working class people are so used to being um, ignored and so used to being abused that they realise that there is strength in numbers and that, you know, you do have to speak to each other to become more powerful. And obviously women in particular have had, have had decades of this. So for Dawn, working class women coming together to organise on the basis of their class is a way to deal with the gender inequalities they experience. Uniting around class can be used to break down other barriers. Does the same thing apply to race? Wilf Sullivan is the Race Equality Officer for the TUC, the Trades Union Congress. Well, I don't think, you, for me, I don't think you can divide race and class. Mm-hmm that uh, racism was all about exploitation. It's just an added aspect of class exploitation in a way. Mm. Um, And therefore, you know, if you're going to talk about um, race, then you need to be thinking about that in the context of class anyway and in the the overall context of capitalism. So from all of your experience, obviously you've been working in the labour movement for a long time. Mm. Where have you seen really good examples of that? Tell us about if there's ever, ever been any cases or people that you've spoken to where you've heard really good stories about where those things have come together and acted as a barrier or where they've been discriminated against? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, you have to look at what's happened in this country historically, and I won't go into a long historical rant about it, but even even if you look back into in the 60s and 70s where actually what you saw was... Um, but working class people uh, who weren't necessarily at the time supported by the trade union movement having to organise um, in, in, in factories because actually, and other workplaces because they were uh, the most exploited of, of the working class at the time. So they got the worst jobs, they got the night shift, they got the dirty work. Um, but they, they clearly organised on the basis of of their race and their class. Um, and there were a number of disputes 
in the in the sixties and seventies, not only what like places like Imperial Type Writers, Mansfield Hosiery, um, uh, where um, uh, people came together and fought, um, not on not on the basis of race, actually, uh, though race was a factor in it, but work, fought for better working conditions, for trade union recognition and better pay. <laughs> Uh, but they were unified by sort of working they together. Were, they were, they were unified by their class and by their race. United by their class and their race. Can class be the common factor here? A shared identity that helps people tackle issues of sexism, racism and other divides in our society. We've heard about the impact class has on people's lives. A barrier to people going into education, getting certain types of jobs and ultimately doing the things that they want to do. That can't be right, and as a society, we should be doing things to fix it. What if, paradoxically, class was part of the answer? An identity to bring people together to confront inequality and discrimination in our society. In the final episode of this series, we'll be asking that question. I'll be talking to journalists Owen Jones and Ellie Mayo Hagen. Class politics, you don't we don't have to say talk about the liberation of the proletariat and and all the rest of it. I'd quite like to then. I know you would. <laughs> You've already you were the one who cracked open the proletariat game in this podcast. I dropped the P bomb. <laughs> the P bomb. So that's my class story. What's yours? Tweet me at Pfizer Shaheen on Twitter, but be nice. <laughs>